Here's a uh, quote from uh, a guy, Dave Brees. He wrote a book called Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. He said this in that book. In the word scientist, we have one of the most revered titles of our day because the word denotes one of the most respected professions of modern times. It might even be argued that modern times have themselves been created by the advance of science. Science and the scientists have taken to themselves credentials deemed unassailable in our culture. So much is this the case that any finding about anything can be rendered instantly déclassé, that's a fancy word for wrong, by tagging it with the criticism, it's not scientific. On the other hand, the sublime truth of almost anything is established instantly when the expression science has taught us is applied to it. Being scientific is to travel the high road of acceptance and status. So pervasive is this assumption that many strange notions have gained credibility when the proponents have applied to them the term scientific. The word science has been inflated to the point that it is assumed that science knows it all and can tell us anything. Our society has come to assume that the source of all knowledge is science. Once a thing is established as being scientific, it moves beyond debate and becomes an article of faith. What we're looking at this morning is the first of the five lies, which we're calling the schemes of the devil in the modern world. And the first of the five lies I coined this clever expression for is the dice roll themselves. What I really mean by that is all existence, all existence is the product of time and chance. In fact, I guess you could state it even more, this lie even more strongly and say all existence is only the product of time and chance. And <clears throat> so we say, we, we notice a certain uh, materialistic naturalism is a very powerful worldview in the world today. Uh, and so we're going to talk about this, and I, I think it's interesting to talk about this status of that expression, is it scientific, as a kind of an example of what we're talking about. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. It's a certain reduction of the world into something that can be understood by the tools of materialistic science. Now, I don't guess we want to try to argue that you can't figure out a lot of things by, by practicing science. So, those of us who uh, might want to cast some doubt on this materialistic naturalism need to be careful. 
We need to be careful that we don't become anti-scientists, because that would be really stupid. Because it is self-evident, well it is to me, seems obvious to me that the practice of modern science has generated a lot of really good and useful knowledge. And so we have to be cautious not to become anti-scientists. At the same time, we don't want to consider scientists, like this quote observes, as above criticism. Any real practice of science, of course, assumes that all science is criticizable. That's one of the reasons it's so fruitful. And yet, we do have this seeming, I don't know, this, this creep, if you will, this move into uh, judging all knowledge on the basis of whether or not it's scientific. I just think that's, uh, well, it's something a scientist probably knows he shouldn't do, but it's super tempting because it's really power. But its power lies not in how scientific it is, but in the sort of political and social reality of being able to claim something as scientific. But anyway, we'll come to all of that. I, we want to start by just talking about this philosophy. Uh, it's a philosophical uh, presupposition, a worldview, if you will, which means already it's not scientific. It's, uh, it's a set of presuppositions that are applied in the practice of science, and usefully so. So we want to talk about, well, how did we become, or we as a broad term, how did the world uh, begin to buy into this uh, idea, this worldview of materialistic naturalism? This thing that says, all existence is the material universe. And the material universe is all that there is. All existence is only the product of time and chance. <clears throat> uh, so, the first section here I've entitled Naturalism Run Amok, and I, I just want to talk about how natural science became philosophical naturalism. And those are two different things. And when we see this sort of scientific authoritarianism we're going to talk about in a minute, it's a, it's a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a blending of these two different things as though they, and present a presentation of them as though they were the same thing. When they are not. So we'll figure all this out. There's what we're talking about here is kind of a history lesson, and we start with this. At some point, <clears throat> around the age of the Enlightenment, really around that, on all sides, we uh, we discovered that it would be useful to distinguish between the natural and supernatural realms 
while we're figuring out the natural realm. What are the boundaries of the material universe? Now, this distinction, of course, has been around a long, long time. The material world and the immaterial world, which you might call the world of uh, the spiritual world, or the world of the mind as opposed to the world of the brain. Get the idea, this distinction. And then we figured out that we could do experiments to study material cause and effect. If we do this, then this will happen. And to discover the patterns of nature. Now you might want to notice that this depends on the assumption that there are such patterns. This depends on concluding to begin with that this will be a fruitful exercise and that we will find certain laws operating in the material universe. And in fact, we did. We did. And we can quantify these laws. And we have, you know, Planck's constant. I don't even know what that is. But, you know, we have a bazillion of these uh, mathematical rules that govern the material universe. We've discovered a lot of this. And we do it by applying the scientific method. The scientific method is, I'd like to know, that's what I see. I think, I look around and I say, I think it operates like this. That's a hypothesis. And then I think, now, how could I design a test to verify or deny my hypothesis. Design a test that I think will do that and I pass it around to the rest of you and I think, do you think this will work? And then we all say, yeah, that will probably tell us something about your hypothesis. So we run the test and we design the test so that whether I run it or you run it or 16,000 other people run it, it will show the same result. It will either confirm or not confirm my hypothesis. This is, I'm just telling you what you should have learned in seventh grade science. <coughs> uh, and uh, so then I, get, I gather the data from the test and I analyze it and I come to a conclusion. My hypothesis turns out now, maybe I should adjust it like this, and then maybe I should run this test. And you can see that this is a, a way to figure stuff out. And what it figures out is the cause and effect relationships in the material universe. That's what it figures out. That's what it's designed to figure out. Uh, it has that kind of a limitation. Well, as we develop this practice, we also said to ourselves, as we should, you know, we should resist jumping to magic as an explanation of things. You know, you, I don't know if you're familiar with this story uh, written by Mark Twain. It's called The Connecticut, uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. So Mark Twain wrote this story about this 
guy from Connecticut who somehow accidentally ended up in the Middle Ages. And he had some matches. And when he lit the match, everyone bowed down to him like he was some kind of a god, you know. And so the, the point here is, there's a tendency sometimes to have something we call a god of the gaps. And we say, well, if I can't figure out how this works, it must be God. Now, of course, if I'm a Christian, everything's God, even if it's working according to the mechanics of the universe. But uh, if we're going to figure out the mechanics of the universe, we might want to resist the temptation to jump immediately to God as an explanation or any other kind of magic. So, those first three steps uh, have been really useful. And so our progress of understanding the material world that we live in has, you know, in the last 300 years, gone from almost zero to something really amazing. And, you know, so now I have one of these in my pocket as a result. It's crazy how much benefit this has produced for humanity. Well, then there's a couple more steps we take that might go a little haywire. The next step is to assume that supernatural explanations are entirely unnecessary. In other words, we go from the usefulness of avoiding a supernatural explanation as a first guess to look how much we've figured out without resorting to supernatural explanations. Supernatural explanations are unnecessary. We don't need them. In fact, we develop this as an article of faith. So we actually say something like, all existence can be explained in materialistic terms. And so we shift from not resorting right away to uh, spiritual explanation or anything, to denying the possibility of a spiritual explanation for anything. And so we now have come to a point, to a new faith, and the faith is in our own ability to sort out the cause and effect relationships of the natural world, and we've now moved to this sort of presupposition that says, well, I'm going to try to move from, I'm going to try to study the natural world in isolation to, I don't believe there's anything except the natural world. Well, that's um, that's a pretty significant move, and we frequently, well, we did historically, I think we made that move without really stopping to think about what we were doing. And so then, of course, as I continue to study the natural world, things don't fit that. Things don't fit that. So nowadays, of course, there's a whole field of uh, study called intelligent design, and 
mostly this is populated by scientists and mathematicians who notice stuff that indicates that there is more to this than the material universe. And so there's plenty of anomalous data in the materialist philosophy. Uh, so what do we say if I'm uh, in the new faith that says, no, all there is is the material world, how do I respond to this data? I, I literally say this, give it time. That's the only, that is the response. We'll figure it out. Give it time. And even as a a uh, person of this sort of philosophical nature looks back in time, they say the same thing. Give it enough time, anything's possible. The whole thing is part of the time of change. Just to give you an example, uh, this guy is actually a Nobel Prize winner, George Wall, wrote this. One only has to wait I'm quoting now from his article, The Physics and Chemistry of Life. Uh, an article published in a book called The Physics and Chemistry of Life, a Scientific American book. He wrote this, one has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. What interesting language. Wald went on to say this, given so much time, the impossible becomes possible. The possible, probable, the probable, virtually certain. <clears throat> uh, so the theory is basically this: if, if the universe is big enough and long enough, as in long-lasting enough, everything happens. There, this goes into sort of really weird. Uh, really, really weird multiple universe models and all kinds of stuff where there's somewhere in the vast eternal universe a group of men just like us. Not us, but exactly like us. Because the place is big enough and it lasted long enough that there's got to be more than one of these. And of course, there's a billion other variations of this. Okay. Well, I, you know, I don't think you could say that much about that except that it is entirely speculative. And it's part of this faith. It's an expression of this faith. It's not a necessary expression of this faith. But it is an expression of this faith that if everything lasts long enough and is big enough, everything conceivable could happen. And not just could, will. Alright. Well, that's a theory. But that is... Uh, I, I guess I would resist it if you wanted to apply the uh, the, the word scientific to that idea. 
That's a philosophical idea. It's not determinable by repeatable experimentation. It just isn't. And yet, because a lot of scientists think this way, it gets the label scientific and then gets a lot more credit than it probably deserves. R.C. Sproul wrote a, wrote a great book. This is it right here. It's called Not a Chance. And you can tell by the title, it's sort of in opposition to this idea that all existence is simply the product of time and chance. This is a hard book to read, so I'm not sure I'm recommending it to you, but if, you, if you're into this kind of stuff, it's good. It's really good. Uh, and he demonstrates repeatedly in this book that he's way smarter than I am. But uh, anyway, so I, I do recommend it, but I'm warning you. It's hard to read. I mean, he considers like quantum mechanics and what scientists claim about it all kinds of stuff, and mostly it's an argument against the idea that the universe is self-creating. Uh, Sproul wrote this, Recently I read a statement from a Nobel laureate in physics who declared that the days of speaking of spontaneous generation are over. He urged his readers to abandon the notion. He said, henceforth, we must speak of gradual spontaneous generation. <laughs> As though that got him over the problem. Yeah. Yeah, time and it's time and chance. So give it long enough, things self-create. That concept of self-creation, Sproul writes, persists almost unchallenged. It can be illustrated by a news report I heard on the radio when the Hubble spacecraft was launched. The report quoted a noted scientist who declared 15 to 17 billion years ago, the universe exploded into being. Now that number, 15 to 17 billion, uh, gets adjusted. And we figure out that's not long. Anyway, scroll goes on. In a world where a miracle-working God is deemed an anachronism, he is replaced by an even greater miracle-worker, time or chance. And he's making this argument that something can't be its own cause. And so something must exist eternally. Something must be eternally existing. And that thing, whatever it is, is the cause of everything else. Well, are we making a step forward when we say that the self-existing thing is just the material universe itself? As opposed to uh, eternal persons? Is that progress in our thinking. So uh, this is what we're dealing with. I just wanted to observe a couple of things that I find to be sort of common expressions of this lie, that all existence is only the product of time and chance. 
The first is this. It's expressed lately in this expression, believe the science. Trust the science. Now, if you studied science, here's something they should have taught you to become a good scientist. Don't trust anything in science. The very advancement of science depends on none of us trusting anything in science. All science is questionable. So this is not, this, this expression, trust the science, is not a scientific expression. I call it scientific authoritarianism. I think my own view is that theistic evolution models are an example of this. People believe in God, but they also believe in science. Well, regardless of that, and you might like the idea of theistic evolution, I don't seriously object to it, but I also find it completely unuseful. Because what we fail to notice is that the question of origin, that is, how nature came to exist in the first place, <coughs> is not actually a science question. It's not. Because what what we talk about when we talk about how things came to exist in the first place is, by definition, unrepeatable. We're talking about events in the passage of time. There's only one origin of the universe. We can't run it again. It happened however it happened. This is not a scientific question. Now we might study the causes and effects of the universe and science and, and use that information to say something about our idea of the beginning of the universe. But when we talk about that, we are now not talking about science. We're talking about history. We might be able to say, science seems to indicate a certain history. That's how you better say it. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, anyway, so this idea of the origin of the universe, that's, that's not a science question, it's a history question. And we don't discover history by scientific methods. We don't discover history, we don't understand history by forming a hypothesis and then creating an experiment and then analyzing the data to reach a conclusion. Now, science can answer a lot of questions, but it's just not the right tool for a lot of questions. It's not the right tool for questions of history. It's not the right tool for questions of philosophy. 
that is, questions about truth, ethics, beauty, beauty. There's such a thing as beauty. That is a hard thing to get from an entirely materialist, naturalist, philosophical world. Aesthetics. It's not impossible, but it is hard. Uh, we don't we don't use science to study uh, issues of meaning and purpose. If I completely analyze John Scott's pipe parked out here, if I imagine an alien from outer space coming and finding the pipe, he could analyze it a lot. He could take it apart, understand how all the parts go together. He might even make some guesses about what it does. It's just sitting out there. He hasn't seen anyone ride What he can't figure out from a purely scientific point of view is what's it for? What's its purpose? Oh, and why? Let's, let's assume someone built it. Why did they build it? What moved them to do it? These issues are not really subject to scientific investigation. Issues of theology. Here's what it's, I find really interesting when we talk about the possibility of uh, a creator with scientists. There, when we start to introduce the concept that certain things we find in the scientific community might indicate a designer, a creator, they say, well, that's all well and good, but that's outside of our realm. But they don't notice that what they say about how the world came to be is also outside of their realm. And so they don't mind separating from theology and then practicing the theology. And they don't notice that, you know, if you're a human being and you're trying to figure out the world around you, that is a practice of theology. That is going to end up with some kind of God. And in the naturalist view, that God is simply the material world itself. Plus time, plus chance. Those all go together. It's not the right tool, science is not the right tool for politics. It just isn't. Now, you can apply some scientific methodology in studying politics, but if I want to exercise, if I want to exercise authority in a society, that's not a scientific thing. However, it is very useful, at least in the modern age, when I'm exercising authority over other human beings to claim that whatever I say has been determined by science. And so if I say to you, science says, 
you should uh, not drive any faster than how fast I want you to drive. Hmm. Well, science might tell you the relative safety of the various speeds. However, I'm the one saying this is the speed. When I just say science says, I'm just borrowing some power. I think it's very helpful if we all just notice these lines that people are just really nilly crossing all the time without much thought. The second, so the first common expression is this idea, well, believe the science. Now, I believe science. So again, we want to be not, we, we do want to be careful not to say, therefore, all things sciencey are to be discredited. That would be really insane. Yeah, that's not what we're saying. But we're saying it's good if science operates their science operates. Uh, the second thing is this sort of expectation of technological redemption that you can see in our society these days. There is a there is a very real expectation that in <laughs> within the next fifty years we're going to reach a point of technological evolution, and suddenly all of our problems will be solved. Uh, and this is based on Moore's law, you know, the progress of things, and all of this stuff. That's called the singularity by some people. It's a pretty pure example of this article of faith that our discovery of the technology of the world around us will solve. But I. My observation is technological progress is always a double-edged sword. We discover the, the, uh, how to harness the power of atomic vision, right? Yeah. And uh, we could, if we decided we wanted to, generate all the electricity we need from that source for a long time. Very powerful technology. And we could, if we decided we wanted to, use that very same technology to obliterate the Earth. Because it's so powerful. And we have used this technology in both directions. You can see the value of something like artificial intelligence. The value of it is obvious. The dangers of it also obvious. Um, and the dangers of it are not that, you know, we're going to end up in Terminator life. <clears throat> you can see this, I think, you don't even have to go, you know, into this futuristic mindset to, to see this. I think about it like this. Uh, envisioning human beings as soulless is probably not a path to moral progress. If I envision human beings as souls, there's not, we're just the conglomeration of atoms that we are. I don't think that's a path to moral progress. 
Are we doing better if we become more connected to our phones than to our fathers? Is that an improvement? Uh, is a tech-mediated connection a good replacement for face-to-face -face conversation? Is it good to be able to connect to people? I'm sorry, I mean to say this like this. It is good, I think, to be able to connect to people over great distances without the limitation of distance. I can stand here with this tiny device and literally talk to anyone else in the world who has one. Even kind of face to face. But is it good if Bob and I sit right here and converse? By text. <laughs> yes, we would be. I mean, Bob and I are probably not capable. <laughs> so, you know, but is it good for those two teenagers to never learn the art of eye-to-eye, face-to-face, mouth-to-ear conversation? Uh, I think it's at least questionable whether that's good. Here's another book everyone should read. This one is way easier to read. Everyone should read this book. C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man. It might also be... It's, I, I just looked at the first chapter of it this morning and I thought, oh, yeah, okay. It's getting a little arcane in the language. But C.S. Lewis is a master of the English language. Uh, so what he says is exactly what he means. And he makes this point that this move to thinking of each other as just kind of part of the machinery, it's not a good move. It's not a good move. The first chapter is called Men Without Chests. Uh, I think we might want to stop here and pick this up next time. What we're going to do is it's ten o'clock. What we're going to do is uh, apply our method. Uh, what we're calling three C's, and we, this is our method for evaluating a worldview. By the way, these are things you should use to evaluate your own worldview, and uh, the three C's are this. Is it comprehensive? Does it cover everything? Or does it leave out certain things that are very important? Or essential? The second C, on the back of the page, is, is it consistent? In other words, does it avoid contradicting itself? And the third C is, is it competent? In other words, can, can we live by it? Does it help us generate 
real ethical standards, an idea of how we ought to do and how we ought not to do? Uh, does it fully recognize human agency? Now, this is a serious problem for the materialistic worldview, and that is, how does the material world of time and chance alone ever produce a person, a being with agency, who can make real choices, hard to figure out, but then not totally impossible, but really hard. And so we have to think about whether the way we proceed to agency from sources with no agency, whether that's a plausible concept. Anyway, uh, finally, after we talk about the three C's, which we'll do next month, we're also going to talk about truth and grace. Because here's the thing, as believers, as Christians, we are not materialistic naturalists. We believe there's a God. We believe that God created everything. We believe that God is a person's, a trying fellowship, and that our personhood is a reflection of His. And we have a, actually, I would say, a much bigger idea of what this all is. The materialist, naturalist view is a reductive view, in my opinion. I, you know, I just think you probably don't even have need, in my opinion. It's, a, it's saying that what we're seeing here is something much less than the biblical Christian conception of it. Uh, so we're going to talk about then, well, so how do we bring the truth and God's grace into this conversation. Uh, how do we address this from a biblical point of view? Uh, how do we help people with this? Well, one thing we do is what we've been doing so far, and what we'll do even more when we talk about the PCs, and that is to criticize it. To say, aren't you leaving a bunch of stuff out? I mean, that's really my main criticism is right. you're leaving a lot of stuff out uh, and then to say okay well then what and is the biblical account uh, better fit here's what I would argue a biblical account has no trouble at all accommodating the scientific enterprise. But a naturalist philosophy cannot accommodate any spiritual reality. All so-called spiritual realities are imaginary. <coughs> 
not thinking. Oh, so we can imagine things? I mean, the problem with it is, for me, it's just kind of present on the face of it. It's like, there's, you're not accounting. There's things we all know and depend on on a daily basis. I do have to stop because we've used up 40 minutes already, so we're going to stop there. Father, thank you for... Thank you for being present. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for your provision in our lives. Mostly, Lord, thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who brought the reality of you into this material world. Brings it now. Brings us into your presence. Thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and enables us to experience the fullness of God in the fellowship of the saints, to uh, enjoy uh, this company, this time together, this great food, the, these good friends. Thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.